0: Our culture celebrates independence, and in some ways, rightly. In some ways, it is good to celebrate independence. I have, let me make sure I get this right, I think I'm getting this right, 14 nieces and nephews. One newly arrived just a few weeks ago, so exciting to see. Each and every one of them graduate and progress through their lives. So think about the the steps that we celebrate of independence in our children. A baby who begins taking his first bites by himself. He's eating. Yay, we get excited. Or especially crawling and walking. He's taking these steps of independence. Mom or dad doesn't have to hold him on the hip all day anymore. He can walk and get along on his own. Many others you, you move on towards. Uh, teenage years and they begin driving and the parents celebrate because you don't have to drive them from point a to point b everywhere they go they get jobs we celebrate their independence and then they move out on their own right heaven for parents is that right i'm not close to there yet but we celebrate all of these steps of independence it's a sign of maturity of growth of Them learning, hopefully, what we have been trying to teach them all along. And yet, in the spiritual life, we could almost say it works in reverse. In the spiritual life, in our life with God and faith in God, it is not independence so much that demonstrates our maturity and growth. It is complete dependence upon God. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, we are growing, we are maturing as we find ourselves more dependent upon God. Where we recognize what we sing, I need thee every hour, every hour I need thee. And our our dependence upon him is displayed through our prayer in particular through our regular gathering with God's people week in and week out, because we know we need His Word. We know we need His Spirit working in us. We know we need the gathering, the fellowship of the believers. We become more dependent upon God and more dependent upon one another every single day as we're maturing in Christ. And I want to say that our, one of the main themes of our passage this morning is that we must be desperately dependent upon God because it is the Spirit of God which gives life and faith. And the flesh will avail you nothing. We are in desperate need of God to work because it is the Spirit of God who gives life and faith. We're picking up our passage toward the end of the Bread of Life discourse. Matt we had a privilege of having Matt preach to us the Word of God last week in which he, he took a look at the response of the Jews to this teaching of his, this difficult, these, these hard sayings of Jesus, particularly about Jesus as the one who was prophesied from all of the Old Testament Scriptures, the one who would come and rescue his people as the one who had been sent down from heaven. He further complicates things by talking about no one is able to come to me unless the Father draws him to me. And then he, he ups the ante yet again when he says, I say to you, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. These are difficult sayings. And as a result, the Jews grumble. They are offended. Just like the people in Old Testament Israel who grumbled against Moses and against the Lord Which is the tendency of all of us in our own natural state. This grumbling against the Lord. And we come to our passage this morning where we see the reaction of Jesus' disciples. It's kind of how I'm going to lay out the sermon. These two reactions. One from his disciples who fall away and no longer follow after Jesus. And the second response from those who remain in Christ, who remain His followers, who trusting Him, we're going to look at these two contrasting reactions to Jesus' hard sayings, and then what's underneath it. What's, what's undergirding these responses? What is the, the ultimate cause of these responses? So first take a look at verses 60 through 65 of chapter six. John calls these people his disciples. When His disciples, when many of His disciples heard it, they responded in a similar way to the Jews. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it or who can heed this? Who can hear it and receive it? It seems so difficult. As I said, I think that this, of this hard saying, what is the the hard saying? I think that He's speaking of Jesus' words about Him being the one who has come down exclusively from the Father, and is the Messiah. But also I think he's speaking about this, this hard saying of, no one can, is able to come to me, have faith in me, unless he is drawn by the Father. But, and then more particularly, as Susan read, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. These are hard words. Who can hear it? They were offended by it. That's what Jesus says. Knowing in himself, so this supernatural knowledge that they were grumbling about it there's the same word they're doing the exact same thing that the Jews were doing there's no distinction in their reaction and that of the Jews Jesus said to them do you take offense at this or is this a stumbling block to you are you tripping over this and turning back because of this then what if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before this is somewhat difficult to understand I take it to mean if you were to see, you, you hear these hard sayings of, of mine and you do not believe. What if you were to see me ascending into heaven? What if I were to ascend into heaven right before your eyes? Would you then believe? I think he's arguing even then, it wouldn't be enough for you to believe because it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He's speaking of the Spirit of God who gives life and faith. The flesh, they're referring to the human will, human logic, human rationality, uh, trying to, to believe or understand in yourselves. He says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. In other words, They should be believing because of the words that Jesus is speaking about himself. These hard sayings that they are taking offense uh, at. These are words which are filled with the Spirit. These are words which, if received, give life to you. But some of you are not believing. You don't believe. There's a parenthesis there where our author, John, says, "...for Jesus knew from the beginning..." who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He has this supernatural knowledge, this vision that we, we can't penetrate the hearts of people around us to see belief or unbelief in their hearts. Jesus does. He knows they're disbelieving. And here comes an intensification of what Jesus has already said in the previous paragraphs in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. So we need to work out a couple of things in this this sentence. This is why I told you. We need to figure out what is the this is why part. Why did he tell them this? And I would link it right back to the preceding verses. Because the words that he spoke were spirit and life, and yet they still didn't believe this is why I told you, Jesus says, that no one can, is able to come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. We also need to figure out what does it mean that, uh, regarding someone coming to Jesus. And I would link it back with the rest of our previous passage where there, is, there are parallels between coming to Jesus... And having faith in Jesus. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger, and anyone who believes in me will never thirst. There's a parallel there. He's saying coming to Jesus is the same as believing in, as trusting in, as having faith in Jesus. So no one can come to me, is able to come to me in faith, unless, here's the exception, intensified that Matt pointed out last week. The, the exception, unless it has been given to him by the Father. What is the it? That's the other thing we have to figure out. No one can come to me, believe in me, unless it has been given him from the Father. And the it points right back to the coming to Jesus. In other words, he's saying to them, I'm speaking words to you that are life and that are of the Spirit, and yet you will not believe. Why won't you believe? Because no one can come to me unless the Father has granted it to them. No one can believe in me unless the Father has first granted it to them. He wants to draw them to a point of complete dependence upon Him. He wants them to despair of their own ability to understand. He wants them to despair of their own will to believe, their own will to follow Jesus so that they would be silenced before the Lord. They would recognize they have nothing to give. Let me try to illustrate what I think is the meaning of this last verse in particular. I would disagree with some of my brothers and sisters who on this particular issue of what this passage means, it's a somewhat hard saying, right? It's a, it's a controversial passage. Well, how many of you have ever seen the game show, Let's Make a Deal? So the host stands there and he, he offers, I'll give you $500 right here and now, or you can choose between door number one, door number two, door number three. Now, you don't know what's behind the doors, but what if they were to open up two of those doors? You see exactly what's before you? In door number one, I have a trip to Jamaica. Will I choose that? In door number two, I have this brand new set of appliances that I need for our home. Which one will you choose? Well, let's imagine Jesus would be behind door number three, but it's closed. So some brothers and sisters would say that this passage saying God is granting someone to come to Jesus by simply lifting that third door. Now they can come to him. It's been granted to them that they can come. And he might even grab them by the hand and lead them over in front of door number three. See how how wonderful it is. You ought to choose this door. He might even encourage them. And so for some, they would say, this is what it means that the Father is granting them to come to Jesus. He's opening a way. I, I would argue, even if you were to do that, they still... Naturally, we would not choose door number three, Jesus, if it depends on us in our own natural state. We will refuse every moment. Rather, what it means that no one can come to him unless the Father has granted it to him is as what Matt was preaching last week. The Father, he, he not only draws you to the door, he actually draws you by changing your affections, by changing your loves, by changing your heart. What is needed is not to be walked in front of the best choice. What is needed is a fundamental change in our very being. This is what is prophesied in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. I will give to you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. This is what it means to be granted faith from the Father that he changes our hearts, and then we see door number one, we see door number two, and they are nothing. Our hearts are drawn to Jesus Christ in faith. He grants it to us, brothers and sisters. And thus, our boasting is doubly negated. First of all, your boasting is negated in that it is not by works of the law, but by faith alone that you have been justified. Where is your boasting then, brothers and sisters? You have done nothing to earn God's favor, to earn acceptance with Him. It is by faith, not by works of the law. But secondly, your boasting is negated because this very faith that you have is not your own. As Ephesians 2 tells us, it is the gift of God so that no one may boast before Him. This is the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. This is the grace that we have in our sovereign God, that he grants us faith. And that has some important implications for us as well. One implication from this is that we need to be careful that we are not disciples in name only as these people were. They were disciples. John the author calls them disciples, and yet at the hard sayings of Jesus, they fell away. Why? Because their following after him was only after the flesh. It was only by their own natural will or strength. It was not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Be careful, brothers and sisters, if there be uh, an evil heart of unbelief lingering in you. And what what do you say then to unbelievers if this is the case? What do you say to unbelievers if you if you if we preach that you are unable to have faith in Jesus Christ unless God grants it to you? What do we say to unbelievers? Do we say, well, there's nothing you can do, just forget about it? No, brothers, we say, look to Christ and be saved. Come to Him. He is your life. He is what you need. He he is the one who will save you and forgive you and bring you into reconciliation with God. Turn from your sins, despair of yourself and anything you could do to earn God's favor and look to Christ alone. He has done everything necessary to save you. This is the free offer of the gospel that we proclaim. It also has implications for our evangelism, doesn't it? Because if the the first kind of illustration I gave you is true, then we should directly press on people's wills as much as we can. What we need ultimately would be a really good salesman to make the pitch, to close the deal, to seal the deal, and to bring a person to a point of decision and then exert pressure on them to make that decision. Ultimately, a decision won't lead you anywhere. If it's just of the flesh, if it's just of your own natural will, that will not lead to life. Rather, we need the Spirit of God to reach in and change a person's heart. We still passionately plead with unbelievers, be reconciled to God, turn from your sins, trust in Jesus. We yearn for them. Hopefully, we shed tears over them. And hopefully, because we know the sovereign work of God, we pray for them day in and day out because we know that we cannot touch the heart, but the Spirit of God can. So those unbelievers that you're you're hoping for, that you're trying to share the gospel with, that you're building friendships with, do you pray for them? Do you you pour out your heart to God saying, please rescue them from their sin and from the darkness in which they live. Save them because you know only God can do it. You're you're turning once again to utter dependence upon God. I need you, God, to do this. We see their reaction and what underlies it, what, what causes it, but we also see the reaction of who Jesus calls the twelve, his disciples in verses 66 to 70. See, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned away from him. Jesus' crowd is, of followers is shrinking. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Are you feeling the same way that they are? Are you offended in the same way that they were? And Peter, the spokesman of the group, gives the answer, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. A couple ways we could take that. I don't think it means we've burned all our other bridges and we just have nowhere else to go. Rather, We have found in you the words of eternal life. We have found in you our perfect treasure and there's no need to go searching elsewhere. There's nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Have you found that to be true, brothers and sisters? This is like the man who finds a buried treasure in a field and upon... Finding it goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Jesus is our perfect treasure. We have no need to search anywhere else. But look at the rest of his confession. And we have believed, we have come to believe, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have trusted in you. It is a settled faith in our hearts that you are the one that you claim to be, that you are the Messiah, that you are our salvation, that the words you speak are spirit and life. It is a settled belief in Jesus Christ. It's not that they understand everything Jesus says. It's not that they necessarily understand what Jesus is talking about with eating my flesh and drinking his blood. He's speaking, of course, of His death, of the cross which, in which He paid for our sins. But rather it is a faith which then seeks understanding. In other words, the, the fo- at the foundation level there is faith and then the rest is just working out the details of what it all means. The rest is just trying to make sense of the difficulties that we faith, face in this life. But notice even here what Jesus does in response to their confession, to to Peter's confession. Jesus answered Peter's confession. He answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? He grounds even their great confession of faith in Jesus in His prior choosing of them, His disciples. Again, so that no one will boast. So that even these disciples Disciples, having made a great confession, will not boast. We believe. You see those others, they're walking away. We believe. We're not like them. We're better than them. We're we're smarter than they are. We're more, more spiritual than they are. Did I not choose you? Their confession of faith, their good confession of faith, was undergirded by Jesus' prior choice of them. It was evidence that they had life in Jesus' name. I've told you once before, it's been a while though, about friends that live in the Burlington area, Mike and Melody Turner. And Mike, for years, had liver disease. He was on a, a waiting list for tw- over 12 years. And what this meant was that whenever they would travel anywhere, whenever they would try to do anything, they had to be at the ready. They had to know it could be ruined at any moment with Mike having to go to the hospital and receive care. It was, it was heartbreaking to see all that they had to struggle through, all that they had to fight through. Um, missed opportunities for liver transplants and someone them not being able to get one, being down on the list, fifteenth on the list in all of North Carolina of the next one who would get a liver. And yet throughout their trial, throughout their difficulties, they would come they were models of faith. They would come again and again in prayer to God. They they would come and rejoice at the gathering of the saints, rejoicing in who Christ was for them, even in even though they were at the point of despair. There were several times where Mike, they thought he was going to lose his life, that he would die if he didn't get help immediately. And yet time and time again, they demonstrated a patient faith, a settled faith in Jesus Christ and in the sovereignty of God. They were waiting in hopes of having a physical life mike but their faith demonstrated they already had life in jesus christ their persistent faith was not a demonstration of their own strength of their own abilities of their own necessarily maturity in christ it was a demonstration of the sovereign work of god in giving them what was required it was evidence that god was at work in their lives that he loved them by sustaining them and by nurturing and nourishing their faith even in the midst of such sorrows. Well, think about your trials, brothers and sisters. What trials have you encountered throughout your life? What tears have you cried over sickness or suffering or loss of life? Over broken relationships? What fears have you faced And then ask yourself this question. Is there an ounce of faith in the midst of all of these trials? And if you conclude there is, then you can be thankful because you know that is an evidence of God in His grace giving you faith in the midst of these trials. Not that you've had enough strength to endure them, but God is sustaining you. He's nurturing your faith. He's giving you that faith that you might have this settled faith in Christ no matter what trial or difficulty you are facing. Ultimately, it comes back to His work and not to ours. It comes back to Christ's redeeming work for us and the pouring out of His Spirit which indwells us, which then enables us to continue believing when naturally we would lose all hope comes back to the fact we have nothing to boast about. Rather, we are in complete dependence upon God to not only save us, but to sustain us through this life with faith. Well, we notice that the Jews grumbled against Jesus Christ in His words. And we notice that many of His disciples no longer followed Him. They walked away from Him. They turned His backs on Him. And we are left with the twelve It's as if Jesus' miracles make the crowds explode and expand and His teachings make them shrink. But we even see in Jesus' words that though He chose the twelve, one of them was a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray Him. We've gone from crowds surrounding Jesus because of his miracles, excited about what's he go, what he's going to do, uh, excited about the, the works that he does, to a dwindling discipleship of 12. We're, we're foreshadowing that we're going to lose one more. We're left to wonder just how low is this going to go? Just how small is this crowd going to go? Just how few disciples is Jesus going to have when it comes down to the very end? And we know in other places, when Jesus was arrested, they all fled. How low will it go? It will come down to just one. As Jesus himself was beaten and mocked and scorned, as he was lifted up on a cross all alone, having been abandoned by his disciples, suffering for their sins and for the sins of all who would come to Him in in faith. It would come down to one, the, the Holy One of God who was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead and He has poured out His Spirit on every one of you, brothers and sisters, who trust in Him. We know it's not In the crowds who followed him, it's not in the disciples who followed him, it's in this one who remained, the Holy One of God. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Look to Christ who gives you his spirit and who gives you life by his spirit. And you will have life. Let's pray together.